And the Queen, Elizabeth II, thought, hmm, this is what I'd like to be. I'd like to be an Impressionist. And the Queen then, as a teenager, began doing impressions. I once did a portrait of Prince Philip in his office, and I was looking through the lens, and I thought, God, just behind his right ear is a book, The Joy of Sex. Oh, my God! <laughs> oh, my God! There's so much to unpick, isn't there, over the past year? It's been such a period of change for the royal family and for the country, really. We've gone from matriarch to patriarch. He is continuing a lot of her traditions. Hello and welcome to a Right Royal podcast with me, Andrea. And me, Emmy. We've been away for a while, having a long-deserved break after the coronation. One of us even got married. Oh, congratulations. <laughs> no, I'm only joking, it was me. <laughs> but we're back and raring to go with a new series. Firstly, we want to say a big thank you for listening and for your lovely reviews and comments. We read them all and it's so amazing to know that you're enjoying the show as much as we're enjoying making it. But enough about us. For our new season return, we're looking at how things have changed a year on from the late Queen's passing. So much has happened, including King Charles and Queen Camilla taking up their new roles, while other members of the royal family stepped up with new duties and titles. So we think it's time to pause for a moment and look back at how their lives and the country have moved on. We'll be speaking to Julian Calder, who took some of the most famous photographs of the Queen, and will be giving us some insight into his portraiture with Her Late Majesty. We'll also hear from Giles Brandreth author, broadcaster and foremost royal observer who will be speaking about his memories of the late Queen. But first, we can't have a show about royals without our brilliant royal editor, Emily Nash. Emily, welcome. Welcome. Hello. Emily, this year has been pretty unforgettable from saying farewell to the late monarch to celebrating King Charles III's coronation. Tell us all about it. Yes, it has been unforgettable. It's been incredibly busy. I think it was good to have a little bit of a break over the summer just to take stock of everything. But I was incredibly privileged to have been inside Westminster Abbey for both the late Queen's funeral and for the coronation of King Charles and Queen Camilla. And they are experiences that I will never forget. There's so much to unpick, isn't there, over the past year. It's been such a period of change for the royal family and for the country, really. I want to know, when you look back at the funeral, what do you remember the most? What moment really stuck? I think there was a moment towards the end when they were preparing to carry Queen Elizabeth's coffin out of the abbey. And from where I was sitting... A couple of people moved and I just had this clear shot, clear view rather, of senior members of the royal family sitting in the front row and watching on. And it just felt incredibly moving and at the same time very surreal. This is a moment I knew people, millions of people around the world were watching this and yet I could see it happening in front of me. And that, that was a very powerful moment. Did you feel a bit like a stranger in someone else's funeral? Like, what am I doing here? Did that cross your mind? Like, I know it was for the nation. I know it was watched all over the world. But also, it was family for other... You know, the Queen was... But Absolutely. it felt like we knew her, though, you know? Like, yeah, I, but we... I feel like I'd feel like I deserved to be there. Yeah, well, I, th- I think, look, I was there, obviously, as a member of the press, and we are the eyes and ears of 
what's happening. You know, we wrote about it very, very extensively. And yes, I did feel that to an extent, but this was such a huge state occasion. How they got through it, though, with the level of dignity that they did, I'm in awe of. I think for anyone who's gone through a family bereavement, it's Funerals are incredibly tough. They are. But to do that being watched by the whole world and by the cameras and knowing that everything that's going through your mind may be etched on your face yeah. is something I wouldn't want to experience myself. Obviously soon after, well not soon after, a few months later we had our first Christmas without the Queen. Absolutely. Our first King's speech. I'm reminded of the deeply touching letters, cards and messages which... So many of you have sent my wife and myself, and I cannot thank you enough for the love and sympathy. What I did like around Christmas time was the fact that he had a celebration with a lot of family members. Like, he really thought that through. He wanted everyone involved. You know, he is taking after his mother in that. Yeah, absolutely. We've gone from matriarch to patriarch. He is continuing a lot of her traditions and I think having the whole family there was very important as well because they're also grieving. They've also lost their grandmother, their mother. It's absolutely right. The family should come together. And whatever difficulties have been going on behind the scenes, they've put on a united front. And I think they've probably taken a lot of comfort from one another. And soon after, coronation. The coronation... Interestingly, I think for those people covering it, it was actually almost a bit more daunting than the late Queen's passing because in many ways we'd had so much time to prepare for that and had gone through what was likely to happen, the scenarios many times previously, but very few people who were still working or commentating today had never been to a coronation. And that includes all the people in the royal household. So they had to get their head around this ancient ritual, this ancient tradition and work out how they could do justice to that history while making it relevant and giving it a slightly modern twist. I mean, no one watching that ceremony in Westminster Abbey would have come away thinking, well, you know, that's bang up to date because yeah. <laughs> it's quite a, quite an extraordinary thing to witness. But there were definitely elements in it which brought it into the modern era. Won't you come see about me? I'll be alone. So obviously before the coronation and in the months following the Queen's passing, I think we'd be remiss not to talk about another major moment in the royal family's lives. And that is the release of Prince Harry's memoir, Spare. Well, Spare was in every sense a bombshell. And I think that it was incredibly hard for the royal family to live through, especially so early in the King's reign. Harry came out with some quite extraordinary details about his life, levels of personal detail <laughs> that most of us were not expecting. Oh, God, and I'm yeah. just referring very... Um, we're not <laughs> circling back to that right now. We're not going to no, talk about the Arctic. No um, Elizabeth Arden cream for you, Andrea. <laughs> no, but, you know, in all seriousness, he obviously has shared some very painful moments in his life. And the book is beautifully written, obviously, and has done incredibly well. But, you know, there were some low blows in there for members of his family. And I think it's been interesting to see the way that they haven't reacted. Now, you follow the royal family very closely, and you have followed King Charles and Queen Camilla since the coronation. Yes. Which was many, many months ago. How has that been? 
It's been fantastic. I was with them on their first state visit as king and queen, which was to Germany. We went to Berlin and Hamburg. Given everything that's gone in our country over the last few years, Brexit, whatnot, the economic situation we're in, we couldn't get better publicity. We couldn't get better sort of ambassadorship for the country. And yeah. these trips, you know, they may look a bit dry sometimes, lots of men in suits shaking hands, but they are incredibly valuable. And I think it's good to see he's getting straight into it. I can imagine that the first year has been kind of like a testing year. They haven't done anything too big or too small. What do we think will happen second year? We're going to have a lot of international travel. For starters, next year, there's another Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting. You may remember the last one was held in Rwanda. The next one is due to take place in Samoa, which is very far-flung part of the Pacific. I'd love to know if we have any listeners there, by Ooh. the way. I think it's been great to see the Queen as well, really taking to her role like a duck to water, if you like. And this is, you know, everyone tells us, not someone who set out wanting to be Queen. She didn't come into this relationship for the status or for the glamour and the, the jewellery or whatnot. She's got on with the things that she cares a lot about and has been a fantastic support to the King. And if you just see the smile on his face when they're together and the fun they have together, you can't imagine him doing it without her. True. Absolutely. Now, we can't wrap up this chat without mentioning Prince William and the Princes of Wales because it has been a big year of change for the monarch and his wife, but also for his son, the future king. Absolutely. I mean, William is now the heir apparent. He's got a lot to get his head around. Not only has he become Prince of Wales, you'll see that he and Kate are spending a lot more time in Wales, which is a good idea in their position. But... He also has to manage now the Duchy of Cornwall, which is an extraordinary portfolio of land and properties. It's a lot to get his head around and he will want to do justice to these things. He's not the kind of person who will rush in and go just to cut a ribbon or make an appearance for the sake of it. Everything he does, he feels, has to be part of a bigger effort. So we're seeing very selective projects from him, like the homelessness one, for example, like Earthshot. He wants to make sure that he uses his time as effectively as he possibly can. Well, let's carry on this conversation with someone who knows the Queen very well, Julian Calder, who's taken some of her portraits over the years. Welcome to our podcast, Julian. We're so excited to have you here with us today to talk about the Queen a year on from her death. You knew her for many, many years, but I would love to go back to the very beginning and hear about the first time you ever met. Well, I met her on the Royal Tour of China in 1996. But the first time I actually photographed her one-to-one was for the Golden Jubilee and the palace from the National Portrait Gallery asked five photographers to photograph her and I was one of them. But they said, could I photograph her after the state opening of Parliament? Before, you know, she'd done the speech and then before she leaves, so you had about five minutes or so. And I had agreed with a friend of mine that we were doing this picture for a purpose, that she would be not wearing the crown. And so there was a cushion beside her, and we're going to put the crown there, and she was going to wear the, the diadem that Angela Kelly was going to put on. Anyway, the, the press secretary said, no, she's wearing the crown, she's wearing the crown. And I hadn't been introduced to her, and she threw, the press secretary threw me, and, you know, Prince Philip was saying, get on with it, and stuff sort of thing. <laughs> and anyway, the, the, the picture was absolutely fine, but it was never released. Because, I can say that now, the crown looked like a burden. 
Oh. They look too heavy. So, anyway, I was up in Balmoral three days after 9 11, which is a strange time to be up mm. there when we don't think. And I'm photographing the Piper. And I was packing up and leaving the castle. And Equi said, Oh, we hear you don't like the picture of the Queen you did in the House of Lords. And I thought, Hmm, okay. And then he said, Don't worry, she'll do it again. Oh. So we then did it in Buckingham Palace, which was set up, and I had a lot of time. And you actually used one of the pictures from that session. Oh. Ah. So, Julian ah. is just holding up an, an old issue of Hello that shows the photo. Yeah, but wow. that's one celebrating the Platinum, platinum Jubilee. Jubilee. Yeah. yeah. So you, you, Hello's been very good to me. You've used a lot of my pictures. Well, you've taken some fantastic yeah. images. Um, <laughs> so... I wanted to have the symbols of sovereignty in the picture, so I asked if we could have some of the crown jewels and the crown and the, the sword of state duly arrived. And we set it up in the morning. The Queen looked at the Polaroids, was very happy with them. She went, she had lunch engagement, and then afterwards we did it in the afternoon. And the main picture was her sitting down. And she was incredibly relaxed and nice about it. And near the end of the session... She was getting a little bit flagging and I thought better cheer her up somehow to get her to smile. She never liked to smile when she was dressed up as the Queen. She was not Elizabeth Windsor. She was the Queen and the Queen of the country. So I looked at her and I said, nearly over, ma'am, but keen and eager. And she sort of looked at me and smiled. (laughs) And it was the cracking picture. It was the picture. So, And then the background in the throne room and Mm -hmm. it's got a a very dark, dark velvet background. But it just so happened that the unicorn, the lion and the unicorn symbol from the House of Lords photoshopped perfectly behind oh. her. I put this, that symbol of sovereignty behind her as well. Mm-hmm. So it works. And the picture was well, well received. So much detail and so yeah. much thought goes into this. A lot of thought goes into these things just don't happen. <laughs> <laughs> All in five minutes? No, that was not the, the one in... The you one had in, longer? Oh, we had all day. So we even afterwards had tea um, with the Britannia China. Oh, how lovely. What an experience. It was was a seriously good day, actually. It was wonderful. We're just looking at the photo now, and I don't think I've ever thought about it before, but you're so right. It's so rare to see her in her full regalia with a big smile on her face. Giving that smile we all knew and loved when she gave that. You know, especially if she was around soldiers and horses. (laughs) (laughs) Had you ever dreamt of photographing the royal family? Was that something? Uh, that... Um, no, I hadn't dreamt of it, but I was a photographer and your aspiration, of course, is yes. whatever. I mean, if you were an American, you'd want to photograph the president. Yeah. If you were French, you'd do that. Or you, you, you'd like to photograph the serious people and head up the country. Do you remember the last time you were with her? Yes, I do. It was part of a film crew and it was, uh, it was on the Crown Jewels. It wasn't that long ago before she died. But it was the first time the coronation crown, the King Edward crown, were together. And she hadn't seen, it hadn't been in the palace for her whole reign. But the problem was then, being part of the film crew, and the film crew, photographers and film people don't really get on. So I'm photographing the Queen, the two of us. Anyway, it's quite a nice picture, but the whole point of the programme was Alastair Bruce interviewing her about the coronation Mm. and 
to be fair on her, you see it on the film and all the people in there. And not that she couldn't remember, but she said, it's all happening behind me. I can't, you know, mm. She didn't really know what some of these people were. And it was a little bit difficult, the whole thing, because Alistair couldn't ask her questions. Yeah, they build it very much as a conversation, didn't they? But Rather... it isn't really. No, no, it's an interview. No, <laughs> no. Anyway, it's quite a nice picture and it's never been released of her with the two crowns. Oh, wow. So, oh, I'd love to see I that. do remember that clip, though. Isn't it the clip of the Queen? Yeah, the clip, it? It's, it's wonderful. iconic. I mean, that clip is... Wonderful. I love it. Yeah. Is there the one where the interviewer's handling the crown with white gloves and then she just grabs <laughs> yeah, she, it? Because yeah. yeah. it's hers. <laughs> Why not? It. Yeah, she grabs yeah. it. It's so funny. That. Brilliant. Yeah. You have to keep your head very still. Yes. And you can't look down to read the speech. You have to take the speech up. Because if you did, your neck would break. It would fall off. So there are some <clears throat> disadvantages to crowns, but, but otherwise they're quite important things. And her eyes just lit up. Yeah, it and was she just lovely picked it up, and you know, it is, it's, it's like, quite almost heavy. quite heavy. Yeah, it's quite heavy. It is quite heavy, you know. But it's actually very pliable. It's quite flexible. It's not solid at Have all. Have you tried it on? Hmm? Have you tried, <laughs> Have you tried, it, tried it on? on? Yeah. No, I haven't tried it on. No, 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 no. no. Yes, how would you know, Jesse? <laughs> what were you doing behind the scenes? <laughs> oh, wow. I wonder if. Maybe the first times that you went to photograph the Queen one-on-one, were you ever told of certain rules like, don't do this, don't do that? No. Never? No, no. I mean, the most precious people are usually heads of companies. Yeah. The the chairman or the CEO of a bank or something, you know. Interesting to think bank CEOs are more diva-ish than the head of the monarchy. (laughs) Mm. Especially, you know, their PA or their secretary would sort of brief you and say, I I once did a portrait of Prince Philip in his office and he was standing there and I was quite young at the time and I was looking through the lens and I thought, God, just behind his right ear is a book, The Joy of Sex. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my word. And I had to say, Prince Philip, should we, should we move that? And he laughed and he got his, his uh, equity to come and move it. That's but you, I mean... You, I'd have looked stupid if that had happened. I know. Somebody was it in his office? Yeah. Oh, my God. Wow, the attention to detail for you, though. <laughs> well, you That's... have to look. You, 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 Thank you goodness do look you noticed. Yeah. yeah. So it's obviously been a year since her passing, and I'm just wondering how has this year felt for someone like you who was, you know... Well, I did have on the cards last summer a request to do a portrait from her, but she never came off. I think... The last pictures of her in Balmoral, you know, with Liz Truss and things, she did look frail and, mm. you know, you don't... It, you want to be left with a lasting image, I think, yeah. of mm. Out of all the memories that you have of the Queen, could you pick a favourite? I think it has to be the Balmoral times, whether it was in her office or out on the moor. It just all gelled. Everything was perfect. Now, when I think of the Queen, obviously I didn't meet her, fortunately. When I think of the Queen, I think her with her vibrant clothes and, you know, from... Most beautiful skin. Beautiful skin. Most beautiful skin, yeah. Wow. You know, when you got close up, it was, you know, really wonderful. I mean, I don't know what it would be. Well, we need to ask Angela Kelly. Uh, well, <laughs> if only we could. Yes. Skin, skincare secrets. I know. <laughs> yeah. She needs to release a book. Maybe it's all the, all the fresh air. All it the fresh is, air yeah, true. Food, food, fresh the air. cold fresh air. Cold, fresh cold air. is good for wrinkles. Yeah, yeah. But also, when I think of the Queen, I think of these, you know, iconic outfits. But do you have, like, when you think of her, do you get, like, a vision of a moment that you were joking with her or anything, you know, what comes up? Overall, she was accessible. 
And that's, you know, for somebody in that position, I've done several projects after that, one of which was to photograph of her with the brigade of the, the household division, so mm. the guards' regiments and the household cavalry and the King's Creek with their colours and standards. And she agreed to it and said, yeah, yeah. And we did it on Easter Monday. They closed Windsor Castle for the morning while we did it. The request came, what would you like the Queen to wear? You know, I thought, oh, that's an interesting one. I knew, I knew what I wanted to wear. I wanted to wear that blue dress that she's got because she always stood out. Whatever colour she yeah. had, she always stood out. One time in the recruiting of the colour, she wore lime green. It yeah. didn't really go with the red, <laughs> <laughs> the scarlet. Anyway, so that's a typical example of how she was willing to be helpful and to make the picture work. And so that that was, and then I asked if I could do a close-up of the badge, the jewel that she wear, always wears on Trooping the Colour. Do you think Charles will be just as accessible? Yeah. No. Been, he's been burnt a few times. Yeah, yeah. It's on the cards that I do a portrait of him. And I'm very fortunate to have done a book for an organisation called the Queen Elizabeth Scholarship Trust, who are craft, support craftsmen of all types in Britain, all over Britain. And even if, if you're using leaving art school or you are want to further a bit of your career, and they're <laughs> universally lovely people, really nice. And I've, so I spent a year, well, six months doing that, and now, now I'm just finishing a book of photographing their hands, which is really nice. I did a book when... Prince George was born. I thought, George, if he has a son, we may not hear a Queen's this for a hundred years. So now it, it took a bit of time to understand that they're no longer QCs, they're KCs. And so I had a list of about 30 people who had Queen's in their names, a number of them in the, were in the household, and there were some that weren't like your know, QCs. Anyway, I wrote to the palace saying, could I photograph this? And it went from the press office to another person, then to the private secretary, who wrote back and said, nobody can give you permission, only Her Majesty can give you permission to photograph these people in the household. And so he said, I'm enclosing this letter, sign it, send it back, and I'll send it to Her Majesty. This was on a Thursday morning. Friday lunchtime, I got a one-line message back from him. It just said, the Queen is content. Oh, wow. Very good. So armed with that, I, I set about and went and photographed all these people. Oh, my God. Do you have those letters? Yeah, I've got that. I've got that email, yes. Yeah. Four email, words. Yeah. I would have framed it. That's, yeah. yeah. Really <laughs> content. Yeah. To be told that, that you everyone. made the Queen content, that is <laughs> the ultimate compliment. No, she would, that's just the measure of the person. She wanted to be yeah. helpful. And she was quick. She was quick, yeah. I mean, they, yeah, very quick. She didn't was waste there. anyone's time. No, she was quick. No, which, because she was staff and incredibly loyal. You know, and you yeah. only get that loyalty if you're a good boss. Yes. But, you know. And is there a lot of ranging of gowns and robes in yeah, a situation like that? that. Yeah, so. That's one of the reasons, say, you know, could I take control? Because Angela's sorting it all out. Mm -hmm. And in Angela's book, I, I think there's several pictures of her... Doing it. Doing the robes. And we I spent a morning with her folding and how to prepare the coronation robe, how to prepare the state of the parliamentary robes, how they're folded and rolled and things. So it was quite, we had, we had the whole corridor down there. All robes. It was quite nice. Oh, did you take those photographs? Yeah, yeah I did. Yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Fantastic. 
We need to see all those hidden photographs, Julian. <laughs> we need to release a book <laughs> and treat us to some of those gems. No, well, one day. We'll start a crowdfunding okay. if we need to. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's been wonderful having you, Julian. How did you find your podcast debut? Was it enjoyable? Oh, no, no, it was, it was lovely. It was, it was lovely. I mean, it was quite a shock walking in here and seeing... <laughs> <laughs> it's like the Spanish Inquisition. You know? <laughs> she is quite literally. Yeah, yeah. I am Spanish and you know, I do uh, like yeah. the question. But prettier than uh, a priest. Yeah. <laughs> prettier than a priest. Thank you, Julian. Hey, you know, if you ever want to photograph uh, any of us, um, okay. I'll leave you my number. Oh, the question is, are we people of consequence? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I will approve, as a person of no consequence, I will re- approve everything. <laughs> of course. I'll be happy to do that. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you. Well, he was amazing. I don't think I've ever really thought about the amount of time and effort and consideration spent in creating these absolutely iconic shots. But I think Julian might be a bit of a genius. I know. I think there's so much effort that goes into them. And then perhaps they only have the subject there just for a few moments. So it's a huge amount of pressure, really. I love that the Queen was just game as well. I mean, you hear this time and time again, don't you? But she sort of knew what she had to do and just got on with it. Oh, so was Julian, a very, very good professional because he avoided some uh, drama with the sex book. Indeed. I love that. <laughs> what, what great nuggets of info we got there. We really hope you enjoy the chat as much as we did because we clearly had a, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. And um, what listeners didn't hear was that he uh, offered me a print after we finished recording. So I'm getting a Julian original. What can I say, Andrea? You don't I'm ask, jealous. you don't get. I'm jealous. Don't ask, I don't want to participate in this part of the conversation. No, I, <laughs> I, am, I am incredibly jealous. And I did, I did hint that I wanted one, but I don't think I am quite getting one. You were too late. I know. So next up, we're being joined by a man of many talents. He's a TV personality, royal commentator, celebrity goggle boxer, and a friend to the royal family. Please welcome to the podcast, Giles Brandreth. Giles, welcome to the podcast. I'm thrilled to be with you. And what a year it has been. There has been so much change for the royal family. How would you sum it up? Well, I begin when I think about this year of what it was like a year ago. I had the privilege of being part of the BBC team covering the funeral of Elizabeth II. And so from the day of her death until the day of the funeral, every day I found myself going down to Buckingham Palace where all the the world's broadcasters came and covering it. And what struck me was the extraordinary feeling there was around Buckingham Palace during those 10 days. At first, on the first day, there were not that many people there because the news was only breaking. Those that were there were people, there were some people in tears, there were some people shocked. But as the days wore on, there were more and more people. And eventually there were literally thousands of people. I would walk down from Green Park Tube Station to Buckingham Palace and I would be with thousands of people bringing Flowers, mostly. Some bringing teddy bears, some bringing Paddington bears, a lot bringing Paddington bears. But they all came. And it was people of my vintage, people older than me, near to the Queen's age, but people, younger people of my children's age, bringing their children, because this was an historic event, the passing of our longest reigning sovereign, not since the death of Queen Victoria. Have we seen anything like this? And there was a wonderful atmosphere. That's what I really want to emphasize. There was something strange in the air. Of course, there was sadness. But that was tempered by the fact that the Queen was 96 years of age. 
we all die, and she lived a long life, and people had seen her on duty two days before her death. They'd seen her on duty. They'd seen that enchanting picture of her looking up at the camera, still with a twinkle in her eye. And they may have discovered that not only was she doing her duty two days before she died, but later on the same day, she actually saw one of her horses win a race. And as we know, Elizabeth II was driven by duty, sustained by faith, but kept happy by her love of her dogs and her horses. <laughs> I genuinely heard the Duke of Edinburgh once say, if it doesn't fart or eat hay, she isn't interested. <laughs> but if it does, she is. They were everything to her. And to think that one of her horses won a race only two days before she died, that was a marvellous thing. So there was sadness, but it was tempered by her age. There was gratitude. And there was also a feeling of people being at one with one another. There was a sense that people had come, I felt, almost to touch base, to touch base with somebody who personified goodness, whose life of duty and service was exemplary. And I think people felt they wanted to have a share in it. And then when the funeral came, it was an extraordinary event and to be there, you know, at Westminster Abbey on that day, part of the coverage. It was quite remarkable because there we are. This is the United Kingdom, 19th most populous country in the world, so not the largest country, sixth or seventh size of GDP. This is not the country it was when Queen Victoria died. We are no longer, you know, <laughs> we don't rule the world any longer. We are just a country. And yet more world leaders, more princes, presidents, monarchs, prime ministers, gathered in London on the day of Elizabeth II's funeral than ever had gathered in one city in the history of mankind. And there was a reason for that. And it wasn't the significance of the UK. It was the significance of the person who was Elizabeth II. And though that was very moving and memorable. And then we sweep on a year. What a year, you're right. I was then next back at Westminster Abbey for the coronation. I was honoured, excited, delighted to be there as a guest at the coronation. And you saw then this extraordinary, two things you saw. One, history in the making, because here, you know, I was back in a building that had been part of, has been part of our history for more than a thousand years, where every monarch who has been crowned has been crowned in this building, Westminster Abbey, you know, since 1066. That's where it has all happened. And here was Elizabeth II's successor, her son, aged 74, now uh, I think the oldest person to be crowned king, becoming crowned. And you felt, yes, this thing does go on. And it goes on because it's part of history. And what was interesting, it wasn't until the moment of the coronation, I think, that we, I felt, yes, the new reign has begun. Though, to be honest, the new reign did begin immediately on the death of the Queen, because the next day, King Charles III made, I think, the speech that set the tone of his monarchy. It was wonderful. He came, he made a speech that was clear, that was moving, that was affectionate, that was true to himself, absolutely himself. In a little... Over a week's time, we will come together as a nation, as a commonwealth, and indeed a global community, to lay my beloved mother to rest. In our sorrow, let us remember and draw strength from the light of her example. But it also set out various things. It, you know, we immediately knew that we had a new prince and princess of Wales. We immediately knew that uh, love was being sent to Harry and Meghan, though they were starting a life on the other side of the world. 
He both paid tribute to his mother, of course. It was only the day after she died. But it also, he gave us a flavour of his style. And I noted at the end, he quoted Shakespeare. And I think during this reign, we're going to see rather fewer horses and rather more Shakespeare, which <laughs> suits me. So I think it has been a remarkable year. And I feel both gratitude and, of course, sadness at the passing of the Queen, but also excitement, exhilaration at the way the year has gone. And I feel that what has been what has happened during the year, the, the monarchy is set fair in a changing world to continue to deliver the goods, not only for the UK and the Commonwealth, because, of course, King Charles III is through the good offices of <laughs> Elizabeth II. He is the head of the Commonwealth. It's been good for us, good for them, and it's been good news, even if it has to happen because of the death of somebody that, you know, was our sovereign throughout certainly all of your lives and almost through all of mine. Though I can say I'm maybe the only person on your podcast, maybe you've had other older people <laughs> who's actually lived in three reigns. Oh, which is, really? Yeah, that's that's impressive. Wow. Yes. Uh, yeah, George VI, Elizabeth II, Charles III, and actually exactly the same age as the king. And my wife is actually the same age as Queen Camilla. So we've got to outlive them to last into the next reign, which is probably a bit unlikely, given that the king's parents lived to 99 yeah. and 96. <laughs> I know. And that, I think, is something worth thinking about. He is 74, and I think there's a big advantage. I'll tell you the advantages I think we've seen this last year of having an older person as the new king is that we know what we're getting. I think the reason that Charles and Camilla, as king and queen, are accepted is that they are authentic. They're true to themselves. They don't try for a moment to be anything that they aren't. And we have got to know King Charles III over many years. And what's interesting is that we now rather accept that some of the things that we thought of as eccentric a quarter of a century or half a century ago, I mean, I remember myself, you know, thinking all this banging on about the environment and talking to the flowers, goodness. I'm now talking to the flowers <laughs> myself and it works. So the eccentricities that seem to be there seem to have worked. And also, I think the thing about Queen Camilla, what is fascinating about her, and I was lucky enough to be her, with her only the other day because she actually broke into her holiday in August to come to an event that she has supported for several years now called Poetry Together, which is a project of mine where we get older people in their 70s, 80s and 90s and children, school-age children, to get together over tea, cake and poetry. And we have fun. It's a, it's, a, it's a poetry slam with tea and cake. And interestingly enough, she brought her own cake. Amazing. But she didn't pretend to make it. She didn't pretend to make it, but it was a cake she got made in Buckingham Palace. <laughs> How did she make it? Uh, she said it's a, it's a happiness cake. And it was honey and cream. One of the reasons I think it does work is that it's clear to everyone that, you know, this marriage works, that they are mutually supportive and that she is good for him and he is good for her. And you see in the king and the queen, I was conscious of this at their coronation, watching people arrive. And I saw, yeah, here they come, here their children come, here their stepchildren come. And this was a coronation of the first blended family that we've seen in a while in um, Westminster Abbey. It was extraordinary. And so they have had the life experience, the king and the queen. And I think that it makes them more empathetic Anyone who meets the King and the Queen sees that they are empathetic, sympathetic people, and they really care. I remember a couple of years, well, a few years ago now, at the time of, there was a terrible fire in London. There was a tower block called Grenfell Tower, and it went up in flames. 
and there's been a recent similar tragedy in South Africa. Anyway, this tragedy happened in London. And by chance, it was a day or two later, I happened to be at an event and to see the king. And he was talking about this. And there were tears in his eyes. And he was just so, he was shocked. He was, maybe he'd just been to visit some people. I don't know. He was very full of it. And of course, he wasn't saying this, but I was thinking it. He was a person who 40 years ago or more was talking about the dangers of tower blocks like this. And I think actually it talked about the, the architecture of them and the cladding. He never would make a point about that, but I could see his genuine sense of distress. So these are people of feeling, and I think they're doing a very good job. And when I say they're mutually supportive, one of the reasons, you know, I, lucky enough, wrote a book about the Queen that is just a new, a new edition of which is just out. The reason I've called it an intimate biography is because I was lucky enough over the years to spend time with Elizabeth II. And this largely came about, not entirely, through my working for and with the late Duke of Edinburgh, uh, her consort, because I worked for one of his charities. And what was interesting is that the Queen was president, a patron of this charity, and the Duke of Edinburgh was patron. But they didn't really share with one another what they, she was the patron, he was the president, he ran the charity. Now, in a similar way, I'm now a trustee of something called the Queen's Reading Room, which is Queen Camilla's charity to encourage reading. It began during the pandemic as a kind of book club where she shared her favorite books online and people were interested and joined up. And now it's grown into something bigger. It's a charity and it's there to encourage and help people reading, the joy of reading, the excitement of reading, the value of reading. But the point I want to make is this. I've done two or three events with Queen Camilla about this charity. And she is the host, she is running it, and you turn up. But unexpectedly, at each of these, <laughs> slipping in through a side door or coming down the stairs after her is the king. And just wow. as she is supporting him, he is supporting her. And he comes to these events, um, uh, you know, there's no guarantee that he will, but he does come to these events. He's not on the billing, doesn't say, you know, he will be there, but he just turns up because he is supporting her. And that is fantastic to see. And so that, I think, is something quite special. And if you're lucky enough to see it at, at first hand, you do. You've clearly spent a lot of time with them at public events. Have you also been with them behind closed doors? And do you see the same behaviour? Yes. yes. In, in short, the answer is yes. This began, really, because we're. this is one year on, where I think, I hope we're both celebrating the Queen as well as Absolutely. celebrating yes. the succession. Yeah. The late Queen, one of the reasons I wanted to write my book uh, about the Queen was that she was in public a little bit different from the way she was in private. Really? And I don't think that Charles and Camilla are. I think they're the same yeah. whenever you see them. Whereas the Queen, the late Queen Elizabeth II, was quite a formal person in public. There was always an invisible moat around her. I think it was probably to do with age and generation. Yeah. And also when she became queen, there was much more you know, respect. Everyone bowed, everyone curtsied. It was a different age. So there was this invisible moat around her. And she was very much somebody who followed in tradition. Mm -hmm. And she did it the way her father and her mother did it. But as the years went by, she did relax more. And we got a flavour of her towards the end of her life with that wonderful, only a year ago, you know, that Paddington sketch which mm. was so moving, oh, so was, touching. That was so and wasn't great. she good in it? Didn't she, she was brilliant? fantastic. I was crying yeah. watching it. <laughs> uh, the, the James Bond sketch a few years ago. Yes. With, um, but one of her private secretaries said to me, you know, I don't think she'd have done that had her mother still been alive. Had Queen wow. of the, mother, uh, the Queen of Mother been alive, I don't think she'd have done 
the Paddington Bear or the James Bond because she wouldn't have been sure that her mother would have approved. I think that happens to all of us. (laughs) (laughs) You're 70s and you're 80s and you're anxious at what mummy's thinking. But also, I think she wanted to do things the way they had been done before. And interesting, I did say once to one of her private secretaries, you know, it's quite, when I meet her, she seems to be, A, to be great fun, but B, to be more radical than you might, not politically. I mean, you know, she never expressed political views at all, apart from her admiration for Nelson Mandela, mm. which I think was to do with his ability to come out of prison after 27 years without any rancor. She just admired his personality. But she seemed to me to be quite radical in some of her ideas and views. And I said this to one of our private secretaries, and he said, well, you know, I think that was a matter of policy. I said, policy? What do you mean by that? He said, well, I think that the Queen believed that she should be seen to go at the pace of the slowest person in the kingdom so that nobody in the kingdom should ever feel left behind. Oh, wow. Oh, I'd never thought about that before. It is extraordinary. Because when you met her, A, she she was full of fun. She was full of interesting ideas. But she also was quite larky. (laughs) I met her sometimes officially because for a while I was a Lord Commissioner of the Treasury when I was in government and that involved some meetings with the Queen. But I also met her through various charities and socially, sort of knowing various people and through the Duke of Edinburgh because he asked me to do a a short biography of him for one of his charities and then I got involved in, in that. And so I was given leave to walk about with them and talk with them as they went about their official duties. So I did occasionally find myself with the Queen privately. And I keep a diary, so I can tell you that the day I first met the Queen was the 2nd of May, 1968. Wow. And everyone remembers meeting the Queen. She didn't remember meeting everybody else, but everyone <laughs> remembered meeting her. Anybody in the world, yes. whoever met the late Queen, or the Duke of Edinburgh, or the present, you know, the King, or Camilla, or any of these people, William, or Catherine, you remember it. Of course you do. It's exciting. And uh, because I keep a diary, I write about it. And I had these engaging conversations with the Queen, because my problem is that I don't really know much about dogs and horses. So what do you talk about to the person who's only <laughs> really interest in life is dogs and horses. You can't talk politics. I remember I had several conversations with her. One was about teddy bears, which I may come back to, in Paddington. But the more serious one was about the Second World War. Because I thought, safe territory, I'll ask about the Second World War. And I thought, you remember, and Your Majesty. And she said, well, she began talking about Winston Churchill, which was interesting, because she admired Winston Churchill hugely. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'd give you a, a little exclusive story here. Oh, yes. well, it's, about, it's about another prime minister. Um, she admired Winston Churchill. She also, interestingly, admired Mrs. Thatcher, oh. Margaret Thatcher, our first woman prime minister. Don't believe everything you read in the newspapers. It's always it was always said in the papers. Oh, she couldn't, you know, she and Mrs. Thatcher always had a prickly relationship. She was worried that they would turn up in the same frock. I mean, <laughs> there's no evidence for that whatsoever. I think she accepted all her prime ministers. Maybe she got on better with some than others. I don't know. But I think she actually... Uh, had a good relationship with them all. And I was told this wonderful story by the Aquary, who was on duty on the day that Mrs. Thatcher became Prime Minister and had to go to the palace for the first time as Prime Minister. And walking down the corridor towards where the Queen was waiting, the uh, Aquary said to Mrs. Thatcher, now Prime Minister, when you meet Her Majesty's customary to curtsy, of course, it's not obligatory, Her Majesty would. And Mrs. Thatcher interrupted said, of course, I'm ready to curtsy, I've prepared my curtsy. So they go into the room, and the Aquarius says, Your Majesty, the Prime Minister, Your Majesty, and steps back. And Mrs. Thatcher executes the most beautiful curtsy you have ever seen. She goes beautifully, really elegant curtsy, right down to the ground, where unfortunately, she stays. (gasps) 
Oh. She's not able to get up. Yeah. And she glances at the aquarium. She's stuck down there. Oh, so the no. aquarium beetles towards her and begins to try and hoist her up. Oh, my goodness. She can't get her up. So wait for it. The queen, Elizabeth II, comes the other side and the pair of them hoist Margaret Thatcher <laughs> up together. No. Why wasn't that in the crown? Oh, my That's... goodness. But going back to Winston Churchill, she admired Winston Churchill because he was her father's prime minister during the war and her first prime minister. And I think the Duke of Edinburgh had reservations about that because the Duke of Edinburgh wanted to be the first man in her life and found when she became Queen in 1952 that the two most important men of her life were her father's private secretary, Tommy Lassells, mm. and Winston Churchill. Uh, and that I think he found a bit frustrating. But she admired Winston Churchill and remembered the war years and him. But she also remembered... Some of the fun. I said, was it fun being at Windsor Castle? She said, well, I tell you, the pantomimes were fun. And she appeared over five years in Christmas pantomimes. They were produced by a local school teacher, schoolmaster. Not everyone liked him. And I said, what part did you play? And she said, well, my sister, Princess Margaret Rose, she was always the principal girl. And in these pantomimes, I was always the principal boy. <laughs> and as she said this, she said, I was always the principal boy. She then slapped her thigh. Like a principal boy. <laughs> amazing. Uh, it is amazing. And what was interesting about her, she was quite a shy person as an individual, quite reticent as an individual. But when she was performing, she could perform. She never performed on duty. You know, if she had, she was attending an event, unveiling a plaque, that wasn't a performance. That was her being real. And I travelled around the country a lot with her on official tours. And she was totally natural, always completely unaffected. If she was time to put on her lipstick, she put on her lippy. Didn't mind who was watching. She was just normal like that. But when she was performing, she could perform, as we saw in the Paddington Bear sketch, as we saw with the James Bond sketch, done in one take. Amazing. And it was her idea to in introduce those lines. I said to her, would you like quite like to have been a performer? And she said to me, do you remember somebody called Florence Desmond? And I didn't. I had vague remembrance of the name. And she told me this. She said, during the war, we were very lucky. People came to entertain us, the royal family at Buckingham, at Windsor Castle. And there were famous entertainers of the day, people like George Formby, who played the ukulele. And she said, I'm a great fan of George Formby. And Florence Desmond. And she said, I always loved listening to Florence Desmond on the wireless. Now, Florence Desmond was a female impersonator. Oh. <laughs> Florence Desmond was a female impersonator. And in the 1930s and 1940s, was hugely famous on the radio doing impersonations of people like Mae West, Marlena Dietrich, Vera Lynn. And the Queen, Elizabeth II, or she was then Princess Elizabeth, living at Windsor Castle, living at Windsor Castle thought, hmm, this is what I'd like to be. I'd like to be an impressionist. And the Queen then, as a teenager, began doing impressions. Wow. And she said to me, oh, I can still, I can still do George Formby. And <laughs> there and then, the Queen picked up an imaginary ukulele began strumming it and singing when I'm cleaning windows in a perfect <laughs> Lancashire accent. And she could do regional accents from all over the country. She didn't do people very often, certainly never maliciously, though I'm told that her Ian Paisley was to die for. Oh, my word. She, I'd love to have heard that. Yeah. She could, she could do individuals, but she could also do things. She could do objects. She did. She could do horses. She could do different different breeds of wow. horses, make the noise of oh different breeds God. of horses. But she could do objects. She could do Concorde landing over Windsor Castle. Wow. The noise of the aeroplane yes. approaching, the gears changing, the wheels coming down, the whole roar of it. She could do the whole kit and caboodle. Did, so we didn't very often see that. Did she ever make you laugh so much that you cried? 
No, I didn't shave him because I was quite respectful. Yeah. <laughs> the, well, that was one of the dangers with her. And of course, fortunately, in a way, there was this invisible moat around her. And I, I always remember the famous line by the Prime Minister, James Callaghan. Uh, you've got to remember that royalty, senior royalty, they offer you friendliness, not friendship. Never forget the difference. And I was always, of course, conscious of that with the Queen. Though I did, I think, one of the difficulties, one of the dangers is, if you get too chatty, you're going to remember who you are and who she is. And I do remember a conversation that we had about teddy bears. Well, I think I think maybe I did get a bit carried away. <laughs> we were talking about Paddington Bear and her enthusiasm for Paddington Bear. Interestingly, because it was created by Michael Bond. She was fond of James Bond. She told me that when they used to go as a family in the summer on trips on the Royal Yacht Britannia around the Scottish Islands as a family, the treat of the holiday was always having the new James Bond film to show on the cinema on the Royal Yacht. She loved James Bond. Amazing. Um, anyway, James Bond, Michael Bond, created Paddington. Bear, the writer, same age as the Queen, born in the same year. In fact, for her 90th birthday celebration at St Paul's Cathedral, Michael Bond wrote a special story for her about 1926, and he wasn't able to read it. So another contemporary of hers, David Attenborough, read it instead. So we talked about Paddington, and then I, rather stupidly, who did I think I was? <laughs> I said, um, you know about Winnie the Pooh, of course, Your Majesty. She said, I know about Winnie the Pooh. I said, real. Said, I said, I, I tried to name drop with the Queen. I mean, what a ludicrous thing is that? <laughs> the Queen has met, had met everybody. You name it, the Queen had met them, from Frank Sinatra to Idi Amin. Mm -hmm. you know, you know, she didn't necessarily like all the people she met, but she met everybody. I said, uh, I've met Christopher Robin, the real Christopher Robin, about whom the Winnie the Pooh stories were written. It was a little boy in the 1920s. And um, she said, well, yes, I think I probably have met Christopher Robin too. And I thought, of course you have, you're the queen. <laughs> um, but better than that, she said, well, since you mention it, in fact, A.A. Milne, the author of the Christopher Robin and Winnie the Pooh stories, wrote to my parents in the late 1920s and asking permission to dedicate the first collection of Winnie the Pooh and Christopher Robin songs to me. Aww. So when I was a very little girl, I, I loved those songs, and I'm proud to tell you the collection of them was, was dedicated to me when I was Princess Elizabeth of York. Wow. So, is that marvellous? But That's I amazing. then got carried away by this little intimate revelation. I then said, oh, now what about Rupert Bear? I thought, <laughs> <laughs> uh, what about Rupert Bear? And um, uh, she said, oh, yes, Rupert, I loved Rupert Bear. She said, I remember I used to have the Rupert Bear annuals. And she said, and I encouraged Prince Charles to read Rupert Bear, and I think he liked Rupert Bear too. And I said, now, do you know this, Mum? Uh, there are some people who don't believe that Rupert Bear is a bear at all. She said, oh. I said, yes. If you look at Rupert Bear, you'll see he's got fingers on his hands and he's wearing shoes. There are some people who say that Rupert Bear isn't a bear at all. It's actually a boy with a bear's head. And she looked at me quite closely and said, I think there are some things in life it's better not to know. <laughs> At which point I felt I was truly put in my place oh. and stepped back and disappeared into the rest of the party. She didn't have um, time for fan theories, no. No. But anyway, she was lovely. And the, the reason for me doing my book you know, about her, really, was because for many people, people particularly, say, my children or my grandchildren's generation, they think of her as an old lady. They think of her as a sort of lovely, sweet old granny figure. And of course, she was a girl. Her life was so long, her view of life was a long-term view of life. 
every scandal that came along, I mean, the phrase that crossed her mind, I'm sure, was this too will pass. Yeah. Mm. Because it would, if when you were a little girl in the 1930s, the papers globally were full of Edward VIII, Mrs. Simpson, the king is going to marry an American divorcee. I mean, that was a global scandal. And then in the 1950s, oh, her sister, Princess Margaret, oh, is she going to marry another divorcee, group captain Townsend? Full of headlines everywhere. So the Queen had seen it all before. And then, of course, the years with Diana, Princess of Wales, all of that. She'd seen these traumas come and go. And also, she was aware that there were times when she wasn't popular. Yes, she was grateful, I think, for the respect and affection that came later in life, but she never took it personally. Two things to say there. One, in the 1950s, there was a lot of criticism of her, of the way she spoke, the way she dressed, uh, her parent attitude. She didn't answer back because that wasn't her style ever, but it was frustrating. But also, she didn't think about herself very much. That's, I think, what was remarkable about her. The Duke of Edinburgh once said to me, you know, you won't remember this because you would have been too small, but in 1953 at the coronation, we went on a Commonwealth tour, we went to Australia. He said, and millions of people came out to see the Queen. And I, he said, when I say millions, I mean millions of human beings came out to cheer the Queen. And she drove through these crowds, hundreds of thousands of people at a time, with people cheering. He said, and if she'd taken it for herself, if she'd thought it was about her, well, it would have been corrosive. But it didn't occur to her for a moment, he said. It was entirely, they were cheering, the figure who was, happened to be now the queen. came the triumphal drive through the city to Government House. The decorations, on a scale far exceeding anything known in Australia before, cost two million pounds. And I know that one of the things that distressed him, and I think distressed her, but I didn't have a conversation with her directly about this, but I did with him, was when he said two things. One, you know, the media have turned us into a soap opera, and the media have turned us into celebrities, and we're not celebrities. This is a, a role that we fulfill and are pleased to do so and do it to the best of our ability. But that's what it is. And I think the great thing about the Queen, and the reason that, and, and indeed the Duke of Edinburgh, is that they live long and happy lives, is that they were outward-looking people. Uh, the Duke of Edinburgh was very interested in Carl Jung, the Swiss psychotherapist, who did a survey of his patients and um, at the end of his life. And those who were happiest, those who had the best outcomes, were the people who were outward-looking. People who had a faith, a line of life, a philosophy. It didn't necessarily mean Christian faith, or indeed even a religious faith, but a, a philosophy of life were the happiest, and people are outward-looking, interested in art and science and nature, in the world outside them. And the Queen Elizabeth II and the King uh, and, and Britain, the Duke of Edinburgh, were not in the least bit introspective. They were outward-looking people, and that's why they were happy. They looked out. They were interested in the world around them. They weren't inward-looking. I mean, you had a wonderful relationship, and going back to last year, I wondered, you know, your initial thoughts when you heard of her passing. Well, it was sad. I don't know. My initial thought. My initial thought was, "Oh my, isn't she brilliant? She gets everything right. She gets everything <laughs> right." You know, it happened in Scotland, which was good yes. for the union, which she loved. Yes, it happened. It was good for herself in the sense that she was, you know, ill for twenty-four hours. Obviously, yes. she had underlying issues, but she was only, you know, the illness was for twenty-four hours, and then she passed away. And so there wasn't that lingering illness. I mean, 
The Duke of Edinburgh, I know, found it frustrating, as he said for years, and your bits keep falling off. <laughs> Cockrell said, well done, going on. He said, I can barely stand out, never mind going on. Yeah. Uh, so the Queen remained positive to the last. And she was faith, hope, charity. This is what her life was all about. So, yes, of course, it was heartbreaking. But in a sense, it was also, again, just right. She'd achieved the extraordinary Platinum Jubilee, at which she sent out this message, you will remember, which did two key things. One, it signalled her desire for Camilla totally to be accepted as the Queen Consort. But two, it ended with the, her signing off, your servant. You obviously held the late Queen and Duke of Edinburgh in great affection. Do you have a favourite memory of either of them you can share briefly? Yes, I think I do have. I have many wonderful memories. But I remember particularly being with them at the Royal Variety Performance a few years ago. I'm not sure how much they enjoyed the Royal Variety Performance, but they went dutifully <laughs> because it raised a lot of money for charity, <laughs> and they did it over many years. And I think they were quite relieved, to be honest, when first King Charles and Queen Camilla took over, and then William and Catherine took over. But I went, I think it was almost the last Royal Variety show that they went to. And I sat in the, I was in the Royal Box in the interval, and I said to the, at the interval, I said, I'd noticed that during the first half of the show, the Duke of Edinburgh, when he enjoyed a turn, he'd be applauding loudly. But when he didn't, he'd be muttering under his breath. I'm going to get Elton John again. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. <laughs> and then, and then he saw the auto cue for, from the Royal Variety Performance there at the, at the side of the stage, because that's where the Royal Box is. So if you look towards the audience, if you're on the Royal Box, you can see this huge autocue, which the rest of the audience can't see, which is what the presenters on the stage can read. So the Duke of Edinburgh began looking up at this thing and preempting what was going to be said <laughs> and saying things like to the Queen, this isn't funny. This isn't funny. <laughs> so he did this running commentary. Anyway, at the end of each turn, he would applaud or not applaud as he thought fit. But I noticed that the Queen was applauding everything. So uh, when the interval came, I said, well, that was the first half. Clearly, you enjoyed it. Uh, she said, yes, I did enjoy it. I said, um, His Royal Highness seemed to enjoy some bits more than others. You seemed to enjoy everything equally. I said, because, Your Majesty, I noticed you applauded every act, every turn, equally. I said, did you really enjoy every act equally? And she said, well, possibly not. I said, but you applauded every act equally. She said, yes, I did, because, you know, we are on television. <laughs> and, their family, and their families might be watching. Oh, that's so lovely. Oh, what a beautiful way yeah. to end this chat. What yeah. an anecdote. And it does, if I may say so, it typifies them both. Yes, <laughs> that's so sweet. Absolutely. Charles, um, that's absolutely that. wonderful. Yeah. It's so Fabulous. good to hear your anecdotes. Okay, lovely. Well, spread the word and don't forget, sign copies available everywhere. Wonderful. Um, Elizabeth, an intimate uh, portrait. Well, that was amazing. Like, I, I love it when someone is as happy and enthusiastic as they are when you see them on TV, and he's just got that in spades. Are you starstruck? Uh, yeah, I am a little bit, actually. Um, and I hope to be on his Gogglebox sofa with him one day after that lovely chat. I'll be hitting him up. He's just a treasure trove of fantastic anecdotes. I could have listened to him all day. I know, same, same. 
What a beautiful episode with two incredible professionals, Julian and Giles. We really thank them for talking to us today and to you two for joining us. We'll be back next time to talk about royal holidays, so don't forget to subscribe now. In the meantime, catch more with Hello with our news and entertainment show, The Daily Lowdown, available on Spotify, Apple and wherever you get your podcasts. Bye! Bye.